0: Well, good morning, and it's great to be back sharing in God's Word with you all, and it's an even bigger privilege, I guess, to get the opportunity to bookend what's been a wonderful series in Philippians 2. Over the last few weeks, we've spent time in these verses that have called out to us about the majestic and glorious truths about Jesus, and they've painted this beautiful picture, haven't they, of his nature as the servant king as one we should acquaint with, one that we should imitate in our own lives. We've seen the importance of unity in the church, focusing on others instead of ourselves, raising others up, stepping away from foolishness and pride and arrogance. And we've seen how in Christ's own life, in fact, in his own incarnation, the true purpose was to dwell with his people, to come to serve in complete obedience to his Father. This was the Jesus that gave up the wonder of the throne of heaven for the dirt of a borrowed stable. And this morning we'll draw our attention to the final two verses, verses 10 and 11, and what is the culmination of the story of the servant king. But I also think the culmination of the story and the enduring hope of a servant people. It's my hope that we come, as we come to the end of our series, that we're a people further renewed, a people drawn closer together, a people humbler, a people further lifting Christ, higher in our lives in word and in deed. So let's ask God to bless our time together. Let's pray. In this time of waiting, Lord, without hope and without light, we draw close to you because you draw close to us. In your gracious wisdom, give my mouth the truth that you wish to speak to your people this morning. May I be reduced so that you might be increased. And for all who gather in different places, may you create a place in them for seeds to be planted and for faith to be grown. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now if you aren't already aware, at Claremont we are taking time this Advent to hear the words of Luke each day. Taking in the daily verses that speak of Christ's birth, Christ's death and his resurrection. There's 24 chapters in Luke and what the purpose of this is, is by Christmas Day we wake up with a deeper understanding and a better knowledge of Christ's life than we had on the 1st of December. And it's been a wee bit of a habit for me to do this over the last few years. Um, However, hearing other voices and seeing other people read it for the first time has helped me take in more of it. I've sort of absorbed it better. And I'm sure it's the same for all of you who are following it as well. But things that I've read a ton of times From the Bible, from the book of Luke, are coming back to the forefront, and I'm seeing them in a new way. It's one of the great gifts of of reading together. And as I've been thinking about this sermon, what it would be about, I was recalling what Anne and John were reading from chapter one. And I just got this thunderbolt in my mind as I heard the statement I probably hadn't paid that much attention to. It's that moment when the angel comes to tell Mary the news. And says, you will have a son and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And the more and more I thought about it, I started to realise that this is almost exactly, in fact, it is exactly what Paul teaches us in the two verses we'll be focusing on this morning. Over the last few weeks, Paul has chronologued for us the humiliation of Christ. We've met him before the creation of the world and we've travelled with him as he stooped low. Stooped so low that it eventually led to his crucifixion. And last week and this week, we've gotten to this place of exaltation. And beloved brothers and sisters, I want you to understand something from these verses today that I've grown with more this week. If this is all you remember from what I say this morning, I'd be happy because I want to say this, the gospel of Jesus is not complete without the exaltation of Jesus. It's very easy to spend an eternity on the humiliation. Many preachers do. It's very easy to stop at the cross And although there's much to be said for the cross, there is so much to be said for the cross. The manger, the cross, the resurrection are all equally as valid to the gospel. And when any of them are missed out, we lose something of the true importance and the nature of that message, the true richness that's contained there. And so in this hymn, we have a beautiful story of Christ being the glory of God. Coming all the way down from heaven. Pouring himself and emptying himself out. And then going all the way back to be restored to glory. That he had before time began. These last two verses are the conclusion to all we've been talking about. What Paul is saying to us is after all you've read in the last nine verses. This is why Christ was exalted. This is why Christ was lifted high. What Paul tells us is that Jesus was lifted high by God because he was willing to stoop so low. And the Father has such an intimate delight in the Son because the Son loved the Father so highly that he was willing to die the worst of deaths rather than forsake his own Father's will. And it's that humility, that obedience, brothers and sisters, which is deeply precious to God. The whole 11 verses we've studied over the last few weeks has been calling us to that same obedience and humility. Because the Father loves, he loves to exalt the humble. Psalm 138 says, For though the Lord is high, he has regard for the lowly. And so what I want to do this morning is show you what these last two verses mean for us personally. What hope do we have by this exaltation of Jesus? And these are the truths. Because he was exalted, we have the very special assurance that redemption is complete. Because he's exalted, we have the assurance that the hope of heaven is secure for us as well. Because he is exalted, we can be sure that there is ongoing forgiveness for the times that we are broken and when we sin. Because he is exalted, we have a Lord who has suffered with us and who now goes before us, interceding and preparing a place for us. It's the coming exaltation of Christ which makes the stable more than a stable, the manger more than a manger. It's the coming exaltation of Christ which makes the cross more than just another Roman crucifixion. It's the exaltation of Christ that gives purpose to each Christian life. And Paul gives us this future vision of a time when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. But I suppose in the hard reality of life just now, it's difficult to see how that could come to fruition. We look around us in the church and we see empty pews, declining membership, closed buildings and vacancies and so on. We see our brothers and sisters as missionaries being persecuted in the corners of the earth. We see trouble in the world and even Christmas this year doesn't feel like it's got much to do with Jesus anymore. We see brokenness and pain and heartache in it doesn't feel like every tongue is confessing and any great multitude of knees are bowing to Christ as Lord. But there's two specific ways Paul wants us to look at this statement. You have the immediate testifying of the faithful that Jesus is Lord. And then you have the final submission in the day to come when Jesus comes back, where all people and all things and all creation will bow to his majesty. And so while there's something bigger still to be completed, the time for us now is to look at how we can exalt Christ as Lord in our own lives as the faithful. And if we're to look through the Bible, there are some beautiful personal testimonies of the exaltation of Christ that Paul is talking about here. But I think the rawest and the most honest and the most beautiful moments come to us in our reading. Our second reading today from the book of John and the person of Thomas. And actually, before I said his name there, I almost called him Doubting Thomas. It's funny, isn't it? It's sad that that's just the way we've learned to understand Thomas's life and his character. And I wonder when you were hearing the Bible reading this morning, you felt that too. That instantly to your mind, you recalled the doubting Thomas phrase. That's what he's known for. So often the case that he's just known for the man who couldn't believe until he's seen the marks on his Saviour's hands. It seems to be all that we remember about him. But if you turn with me to, back to John chapter 20, 24 to 29 that we read earlier I want to point out a few things to you Now to give you some context it's been days since the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus and he's now been appearing to other disciples at different times and in different places but it just so happens that on most of these occasions Thomas hasn't been present I like to think of him as somewhere different somewhere outside somewhere looking for Jesus We're not really told where he is, but we just know he's not locked up with the other disciples in the room, a place where they went out of fear of persecution. Thomas is not there. He's not one of the disciples, I don't think, that have drawn themselves inwards. And after Christ appears in his exalted form, his resurrected body, the disciples can't wait to tell Thomas of their experience. And when he arrives back from wherever he was, the excitement in the room is overflowing. You can imagine the clamoring of voices trying to tell him their own experience, their own interaction with the risen Lord. And there's Thomas, isn't it? In the room with no experience of this. Now, there is something I want to stop here and point to. And to recognize something important about call Something about being a Christian that I don't think we talk about often enough. As Jesus himself will go on to explain to Tom, it's not everyone who comes to Christ has this amazing encounter. Your testimony and how you came to know the Lord might be very quiet, maybe even silent. It may not have been that glowing light, that breaking in, or that huge revelation, or that wonderful story and testimony to tell. You might have none of that. And what John is doing here is affirming your call as well if you even haven't had that. I spent way too long worrying about why I didn't have the same Damascus Road experience or blinding light experience as other Christians that were my friends. But as we'll see, Jesus still comes to us. Sometimes It's not in the thunder or the fire or the howling wind. But sometimes it's in the quiet voice and the quiet times and the times of loneliness when we're in the house on our own that we hear him loudest. And so here we have Thomas out on his own when it comes to this religious experience really saying, I won't believe it. I won't take it in until I've touched him for myself is what he says. It's almost an act of defiance. It's as though he can't move his heart to the place where everyone else is. He can't find an assurance of his belief because he's not been able to see. Well, I'll be honest this morning. I probably relate to Thomas more than any of the rest of the disciples. Because in all honesty, there is times when it's actually really hard to believe in Jesus. Jesus. It's hard to play catch up with everyone else's faith who seems perfect when yours isn't on fire. I get that. And I also want to assure you this morning that Christians get that. Sometimes we're not sure and sometimes our faith is weak. It's okay. Because when we are weak, he's strong. And so far this is the doubting Thomas' testimony, isn't it? But what I want to tell you this morning is that it may only be the start of Thomas's journey. What if Thomas at this point has just really struggled with the pouring out and the humbling and the crucifixion and everything that's been going on? What if it's all really raw to him and his mind is a mess with it? If that's the case, then if this is the beginning of Thomas's testimony and then we've done this poor man a terrible service because we've decided he's a doubter when actually he might just be on the start of a journey of faith now I don't know how much you know about Thomas but I spent some of this week trying to understand him a bit more find out things about him and I I learned about things I didn't realise. I didn't even realise I hadn't bothered, at rather, to see how his story ended. You see, he went on to become the apostle to the Indians. He He brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people of India and Hindustan. The reason there's churches in India is because of Thomas. And it was there he was eventually killed by being impaled on... Five spears. I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound much like a doubter to me. It's some, it sounds like someone who grew and changed. Someone for whom Christ's resurrected and exalted self became very real. And I think that moment of change happens to Thomas in verse 28. My Lord and my God, he says. Something profound happened within him to say those words, brothers and sisters. I imagine him seeing Christ for the first time and his knees bowing in reverence as he traced the holes and the marks of the humiliation of the cross that had gone before. My Lord and my God. We famously know him as doubting Thomas, but brothers and sisters, here is confessing Thomas. For Thomas, his knees bowed, His tongue confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, just as Paul tells us in Philippians. With those words, he was given a new relationship, a renewed faith, a new way to live, and a new way to be. You see, the difference between doubting Thomas and confessing Thomas was Christ as Lord. You see, the difference between doubting George and confessing George is Christ as Lord. The difference between you who doubt and you who confess is Christ as Lord. The way we respond to Christ is our worship. We are to worship with bowed knee in reverence at that name. Every knee bow and every tongue confess. And as Christ himself says, we'll be blessed for it. Because it takes faith to believe in something that isn't seen. If seeing changed Thomas this much, how much more can not seeing change us? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed, Jesus said. He's talking about me and you as well. As all of those in history who have been able to say, Jesus, you are Lord. And when they've been able to see that, And say that even in the most difficult of times. When I first started coming to church about 17 years ago, I sat next to a lady who was blind. She was always there first in the morning and in the evening and she would hand out wee tracks with Christian verses on them and and, and positive things and send me cards and give me the odd sweetie during the service. And there was something so beautiful about her. She had a real heart for Jesus. And I remember she used to sit there with thick black sunglasses on. And she would spend her whole time with her head bowed in worship, even during the sermon. And I always thought how holy it felt to be in her company or to hear her prayers. It was like the light of Christ shot out of her whenever you spoke to her. And the more I got to know her, the more I got to realise that this wasn't the full story. This wasn't always the case. And one night during a mission week, I got the chance to hear her testimony. And she told us all the times when she had wrestled with God and with other people. That she'd been tormented by her misfortune. She told us she lost her sight in her twenties. And from then she had argued and hated God. And hated everybody else around her with sight for many years. Until one night she opened her Bible and read Romans 12. As though she had read it for the first time ever. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to the Lord. It read. And she asked herself, who's the Lord of my life? Who sits on the throne of my life? Was it her blindness? Who was the Lord of her life when she was angry with everything and everyone around her? And she said she was so caught up in her own heart that she had forgotten her blessings. And after she gave her testimony, I remember going to speak to her privately about it. Plucking up the courage to ask her the question. It still sticks in my throat that I was able to ask her this question. But I said to her, how can you say Jesus is the Lord of your life when you're still blind? And you can't experience the world like I experience the world. She took a cup of coffee and she sat down with me and she said, this is is what she said, word for word. You know, George, I used to hate God for this. But that was me calling myself Lord, she said. Yes, I've been destined to live the rest of my life blind. But I have a joy in my heart that would even surpass the excitement of yours. You see, the next time I open these eyes, the first face I will see will be the face of my saviour looking back at me. The saviour that went to prepare a place for me will take me back and I will be restored. And I will worship him with all of my heart, she said. doesn't sound like a doubter either, does it? You know, the most wonderful thing about these last few weeks is that we have been able to acquaint with Jesus' story intimately together. As we lead up again to the preparation of his coming at Christmas. Look at where it started. We talked about the damaging effects of vain conceit and empty glory, didn't we? We looked at how we should mimic Christ in his humility, doing nothing out of selfishness. We saw how he became a man and died on a cross. And this morning we've seen how he's been restored and exalted. And I want to leave you with this hope in the season of Advent, because this is the hope of Christmas as well. It's the hope that we're waiting for. The same God who exalted a humble Christ is the same God who will exalt a humble Christian. James 4 verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. This beautiful truth about Christ given to us by Paul is simply in all its essence an illustration of the need for humility and to continue to draw closer to him. And so my hope for us in the coming to the end of this series is that we would let Christ's humiliation and his exaltation not only be the greatest truth in Christian history across time, but that it may be for each of us individually a constant reminder constant reminder of the fact that if we come to him as our lord if we come to him humbling ourselves and seeking unity and love then brothers brothers and sisters god will he's promised to lift us up let's pray heavenly father you have come to us in jesus as we prepare to wait on you we are reminded of the grace that's given to us freely that because he was exalted, we can be assured of your goodness. We can be assured of a future that rests in you. Help us to keep this truth in our hearts, Lord, each and every day. In Jesus' name. Amen.